Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 296, Advanced Rocket Engines. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. Last year in 2022, a revolutionary rocket engine design was tested at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. It's called a Rotating Detonation Rocket Engine, or RDRE. It's a kind of rocket design that's only been theorized until modern advancements allowed for this once-only-imagined technology to become a reality. The rotating detonation design is fundamentally different from how a traditional rocket engine works. And the traditional rocket design is one that is very widely used. So when I mention that this rocket engine design is revolutionary, I mean it. We're talking about a potentially disruptive innovation. But we still have a ways to go, and we'll get into that. Now, to explain this kind of design, how it works, and what it means, we're going to have to bring in some rocket scientists. On this episode, we have Tom Teasley, propulsion systems development and test engineer based out of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and Steve Heaster, Raysback Distinguished Professor at Purdue University and co-owner of a small business, InSpace LLC, located in the Purdue Research Park in West Lafayette, Indiana. All right, let's get into it. Enjoy. Steve and Tom, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, pleased to be here. Yep. Likewise, pleased to be here as well. Thank you. Awesome. This is a really cool topic, advanced rocket engines. I, I need you guys to help me to talk about this because this is uh this is a very interesting concept and um it, it's it's revolutionary in the sense com- um next to even something as complicated as a traditional rocket engine. And so we're just sort of going to lay out the foundation. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can get involved with um, spaceflight. And uh, there's, yeah, for for me, I, I like to joke that mine is relatively easy uh, <laughs> compared to, to yours. Uh, thinking about rocket engines, you guys are actually rocket scientists. And so I wonder, I want to start with just a sense of why you guys are into this. Uh, you know, it's a very complicated thing, but, but maybe it's exciting. And um, maybe there was something in your childhood that sparked uh, to get you to where you are right now, working on these advanced rocket engines. Steve, why don't we start with you? Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what, what led you to working on this engine? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm uh, a professor at Purdue University, been here a long time, since 1990. I uh, had the uh, uh, advantage of being a 10-year-old boy when a man named Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. I remember that night as if it were yesterday. And that uh, that definitely set my path uh, toward aerospace. And uh, more specifically, as I got into college, uh, into uh, propulsion, I was excited about working on the business end of the rocket. Mm. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You, it, there's nothing, you know, if you're thinking about space flight, there's, there's not much that's more exciting about just that that smoke and fire, right? It's just a very exciting moment. You, like whenever you think about human spaceflight moments and Neil Armstrong, of course, you think about those 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 steps on the moon and and those words from the moon. But just the powerful launch of the Saturn V had to had to really capture your imagination. It sure did. <laughs> That's great to hear. 
Tom, what about you? What led you to where you are? Yeah, so um, I'm a liquid propulsion systems development and test engineer here at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, more recently, in the last couple of years, we've been uh, developing the rotating detonation rocket engine. Um, and I guess for me, uh, the reason why I got started on 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 this track, so to speak, is uh, predominantly due to my father. So my my father was an airline pilot, and um, he would fly all around the country, and um, he would uh, bring me back home pictures of. Uh, of, of being at 35,000 feet, and that kind of spurred my interest in, uh, in in looking up at the stars. And so I went on to uh, my undergraduate, got a degree in uh, in physics, and from there uh, went forward to get a master's in aerospace. And uh, it's kind of been uh, all downhill from there. So <laughs> all downhill. All right. Awesome. Um, you guys are, are both, you know, you, you took this path to get you to where you are sitting um, here talking about rocket engines. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about, uh, Tom, you alluded to what we're going to be talking about today, this 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 design, this new kind of rocket engine called um, uh, rotating detonation. And I think to help us to understand what that is. Um, what what would at least help me is understanding how we how we typically think about um, the, a quote unquote traditional rocket engine, and so Tom, if you'll kind of help to kick us off on just if we think about what a traditional rocket engine is and how it works and what are the key components of it, um, that will help us to differentiate it when we start getting into this uh this new design this rdre design so so tom kick us off what's uh if you had to describe a traditional rocket engine to someone who was really just getting started and really wanted to understand conceptually what it is how would you start sure so um it, they're they're pretty much for all intents and purposes the same and how you would uh uh you would classify their components you would have an injector or an injection system uh a, a chamber or a barrel section that uh, allows for the uh, the propellants to combust, and then a nozzle to expand those combustion products to get uh, usable thrust from the engine. Um, the, the really the key differences here is that uh, the combustion process itself that that the RDRE or rotating detonation rocket engine uses is is completely different from uh, a, a a traditional liquid rocket engine. So that also inherently changes the uh, the geometry, um, some of the design parameters completely change, and those are a lot of the the challenges that we've been working through. Um, and uh, actually, I, I don't know, Steve, you might be able to describe the uh, the the main differences between deflagration detonation a little bit better than myself, if uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, we're both uh, interested in the combustion part, and that's the exciting part where the, the miracle happens. Hmm. Uh, if you think about a conventional rocket engine, you know, we're squirting in a, a fuel and oxidizer and mixing them intimately. And if you think about lighting that mixture and observing what happens, that flame would just start to move within the combustion chamber at, at speeds of the order of a few meters per second. Um, and uh, in a traditional rocket engine, we designed the combustion chamber to uh, to uh, uh, perform well with those flame speeds. Uh, in the rotating detonation engine, the flame, uh, the flame front is actually provoked to combust by a detonation wave that's moving over a thousand meters per second. Mm -hmm. So 
It's, uh, um, you know, in terms of power density, the amount of uh, energy release we can get within a certain volume, it's literally an order of magnitude higher than today's uh, devices. And that, I think, is what's exciting to both Tom and myself is uh, it's hellfire, right? We're, we are, you cannot eat propellant faster than with a rotating detonation wave. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, uh, that, that, that brings a lot of uh, design challenges uh, to the floor as well. So <laughs> something that we're trying to push through. Yeah, and so so maybe to to help us to understand those design challenges, uh, going back to this conventional or traditional rocket engine, you know, like the, the way you're describing this combustion is is the speed, and you know, from for me who's not a rocket scientist, I would think, okay, that this this already sounds really nice. Now you're now you have uh, this, these flames that are you know supersonic, they're super fast, and that's and that's a good thing, right? So so why haven't we been doing this? Uh, you know, we have the traditional rocket engine. So so what what are really what's really the reason that the this uh, the, the conventional one at at sub subs are below supersonic speeds? Why is that? You know, why has that been the case? And we haven't just jumped right to an RDRE. Well, this is this is actually something the early NASA engineers discovered on uh, the Apollo program when they're in development of the, the F1 engine. Um, they, they encountered something called thermoacoustic instabilities, and they were uh, they actually plagued the F1 um, so much so that uh, I think at one point there was a an entire uh, a, 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 field full of uh, scrap engines because these instabilities, potentially detonations were uh, essentially burning through the wall of the chamber because the heat release was so high and uh, the uh, material compatibility um, was not uh, was not high enough. Um, and it isn't until today because of the advent of, of, of things like additive manufacturing and um, high conductance uh, alloys such as, such as GRCOP42 that we can really design uh, a combustor that can handle uh, such an extreme uh, combustion phenomena. So it's not that uh, it's not that we exactly couldn't have. Um, it's just the uh, traditional uh, uh, liquid rocket engine is tried and true and much easier to design to. And now we're trying to work through those challenges to try and get better performance and uh, 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 reach out further into the stars, I guess. Yeah, that's that's what that's I'm hearing, right? Idea. It's 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 about control. I think that's the really the key thing. Is is it sounds like just given the technology and the capabilities at the time, we just we weren't ready to control this um, to to control a rotating detonation kind of design of engine. And so, like you know, we needed more. more the most important thing is that the rocket engine works, right? And so. That's that's it. What I'm hearing is that's really the reason is we just we just didn't really have the capabilities at the time. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and and Tom's characterization, you know, reaching back to early engines, the Apollo program, uh, our field has struggled with combustion instability since the very earliest days of of liquid rocket engines. Hmm. Um, and uh, now, as we start to pursue these rotating detonation devices, one might think of it as embracing the instability. Let's make it unstable, but let's try to control the way it's unstable. Uh, we have difficulties. We don't know how many detonation waves are going to show up uh, when we when we uh, start up this uh, this combustor. The delicate timing of the injection process and, and uh, uh, relative to a passage of a wave, when the wave passes by, it temporarily stops the flow of propellants, and that's somewhat of a necessary condition to make these engines work. And we don't really understand, you know, how the injectors 
uh, respond in such a dynamic environment. We just kind of make it work. <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And so that's maybe getting into RDREs just a, a little bit more is is that's sort of what you're trying to test. It sounds like sounds like you know what, what Tom alluded to was you know we have things like new kinds of materials and we have capabilities for things like additive manufacturing and these allow us to these allow us to create an engine that won't explode when you try to. Um, when you try to contain these supersonic, these these uh, the supersonic flames, the the detonation kind of capability within within a rocket engine, um, but it sounds like even even with the modern technology, you guys are still trying to figure out how this thing works. Is it? I guess maybe chaotic is the right way to um, is the right way to describe it, or maybe you guys have a better word. Uh, chaos is one way of thinking about we're trying to control the chaos or, or to understand <laughs> it and and be able to produce a device that you can repeatedly produce a certain number of waves and a certain uh, performance, a certain thrust level. Mm. And uh, in doing so, be able to last a long time you know, for multiple missions. Uh, Tom, let's go into uh, you, you referenced uh, some some of these things that that help us to um, to 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 get us to the point where you guys were able to conduct a test of an of an RDRE engine, and you and you talked about just I, I guess if you think about the way that traditional or conventional rocket engines are made, you talked about new capabilities like additive manufacturing, like advanced materials. Um, there are these things that that help us to create a new engine. Um, can you help us to by just maybe? Maybe laying the foundation for what we know about conventional rocket engine manufacturing and design and how that works and and that sort of help us to lead into these new capabilities that that um, allow us to to start playing with RDREs. Sure. So um, so I guess a little bit of uh, rocketry 101. So the way a a liquid rocket engine typically works is. There are coolant channels that are machined, uh, traditionally machined usually, uh, before the advent of additive manufacturing, uh, into the hot wall um, of the combustor. And then uh, typically a fuel is pumped through either hydrogen, methane, which is uh, typically used nowadays, or kerosene, which has been a, a good, uh, good option in the past um, as well. Um, and that's used to actively cool the wall of the combustor. Um, now, going back to, to Rocketry 101, like I said, um, traditional liquid rocket engines, usually you have uh, a, a barrel section, a throat section, and then an expansion section, right? So this means that the combustor in and of itself, regardless of what the scale is, can be fairly long. Um, for a typical lander engine, we're talking uh, 8, 10, 12, some up to even 16 inches in length, right? So that's, that's maybe a foot, foot and a half uh, in, in that range. With rotating detonation engines, um, we're now seeing, just to harp back to some of those challenges that we were mentioning before, uh, that the heat loads that the combustor is experiencing are much, much higher because you're basically releasing all the heat within an extremely short and compact space. And so you can imagine one of the main advantages there is instead of having a combustor that's 12, 16 inches in length, you're now shrinking that down to a couple of inches. Hmm. Um, I've even seen some papers and some work uh, going forward and, and uh, uh, testing combustors that are only an inch in length. That's incredible. That means that you have outstanding cost savings in, in the production of, of the component. You have 
uh, less, far less material that's being used. Um, the uh, design trade space to be able to fit that propulsion system into the vehicle is now radically improved. But then that also creates some substantial manufacturing challenges, right? Hmm. How are you going to design an engine that can be that can have everything like the instrumentation needed, the integrated cooling channels, uh, the manifolding. Um, where is a port going to be fit to to duct coolant through the walls? So those are challenges that we're now facing with the technology. But at the same time, additive manufacturing is now enabling us to go and gener- to go and produce uh, components that have complex integrated uh, structures such as coolant channels that. Uh, allow us to integrate things like uh, advanced instrumentation and diagnostics. And so, uh, whereas using traditional manufacturing methods, if you were to say, oh, we want to make a a combustor that's only a couple inches in length, that could be a real challenge, actually, to the point where it may even be impossible to do with those methods. But with additive, you can now go and produce components that are exceedingly short and then reap the benefits from it. Um, And to that end, because of additive manufacturing, we're now able to produce uh, components with some more advanced materials. There's been a lot of development over the last several decades in, in uh, novel advanced materials, such as uh, high conductance uh, GRCOP alloys uh, that allows the combustor to actually take in that extreme heat and put it back into the coolant as quickly as possible. Whereas we were much more limited in, in the material selection uh, uh, back during, again, the, the Apollo era. Yeah, this I think this is a really important theme to why you know RDRE's work today is that the advancements in in these particular areas in the like traditional traditional manufacturing you just it's it's not you described it perfectly Tom you just couldn't get the cut that you needed it's too small it's too delicate you know there there's there are a lot of challenges to doing that successfully almost perfectly maybe is is the is the right word to use but additive manufacturing allows you this to to be more precise in that in that design and then it sounds like this this alloy you said gr cup this alloy you know one of the main things was you 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 keep referencing this heat and to to think about this alloy i i think it maybe that's the right characteristic when it comes to materials right you guys were looking for something that could deal with extreme heat and I, i guess maybe maybe the materials at the time either couldn't do that or just the materials that could do that were really tough to manufacture what were really the from the from the materials perspective what were the challenges with traditional um with the traditional engines when it came when it came to materials so i believe for the most part a lot of the materials that were traditionally used are referred to as super alloys um mm-hmm. it's actually a group of uh of uh, nickel iron alloys so one of the advantages there is that they were very high strength. Um, however, they uh, it, when when they come in contact with uh, uh, with combustion products, uh, if you exceed certain limits in terms of their thermophysical properties, they can then start to break down and actually become uh, part of the fuel in the combustion process, and the wall would would quite literally burn. Um, they are also relatively low in conductivity. Um, I believe there are some combustors that were using uh, wrought copper, but uh, a lot of the time that copper was uh, very low strength and um, not typically capable of holding up to um, extremely high pressures um, such that a lot of the missions required. 
Uh, nowadays, since we're able to produce these these specific alloys, you can reap the benefits of the strength of superalloys, but at the same time, the conductivity of of uh, base materials such as copper. Mm, okay, there's your there's your factors. Now, um, I think another another important thing to talk about. You we talked about additive manufacturing, the materials that help us to achieve this design. Um, I think another thing maybe to talk about is when it when it comes to understanding the phenomenon we have modern technology modern software capabilities in computer modeling to better understand these designs i think before you start making those cuts um and i wonder if you know if that if that has helped you guys in terms of coming up with designs that you that eventually lead to um you know actually actually cutting the materials actually putting this through an additive manufacturing process if if this has really you know modern advances in computer modeling have helped you to achieve success here oh, oh i think they have yeah i think they have um uh tremendously actually uh, um i think tom would be as an experimentalist would be the first to admit he can't measure everything mm. <laughs> and uh, the uh, flow fields in these in these devices are very transient and very three-dimensional. Uh, so the uh, high-resolution uh, scientific computing allows us to see the entire combustion chamber at various instances in time and uh, to see this wave pass by an injection site and see what kind of pressures the injector sees and how, how the flow stops and uh, how the uh, flow recovers and starts to mix again. Uh, any combustion that might occur prior to wave arrival, we call that parasitic deflagration. It's something we don't necessarily want. Uh, so all of those things come out of these these high resolution calculations, but they are they are uh, uh, very difficult because in general we have to simulate almost the entire combustor, um, and uh, rather than just simulating a single injection site, which is what we might do in a in a conventional engine. Uh, in uh, RDE, because we've got this wave moving around, it's uh, it, it's challenging. You have to use it basically more computer time to get the same type of answer. <clears throat> hmm. Okay, m m multiple layers. It sounds like of of understanding, not just an isolating to one component. Really getting a uh, the the biggest yes. picture you possibly could. It all sings together. Okay. Now let's go into RDRAs. Let's talk about this rotating detonation design um, and maybe continuing to compare to traditional rocket engines. Steve, why don't you take this one on how we like how a an RDRE works um, as you know, and I guess to to try to help to compare it to um, traditional rocket engines and and the complications of this design. Yeah. So we've touched on it. Um, you know, one of the reasons the community is is pursued this technology is it, it allows one to use a what we would call a conventional feed system uh, you know upstream of our combustion chamber we have turbo pumps that are delivering the uh, the propellants to the chamber at very high pressures and flow rates and uh, we'd rather not have to go and develop new turbo machinery solely for a new type of uh, combustor and uh, so the rde naturally mates as far as the the pump is concerned it's delivering a constant flow rate uh, but when we start to look and focus in on injection sites in the combustion chamber, we see a very unsteady flow rate. We see a, a detonation wave passing by an injection site and temporarily stopping the flow. And then the flow is recovering. 
and uh, jets starting to issue back into the chamber and mixing uh, starting to occur before another wave arrives and consumes that uh, that uh, portion of fluid. So that's the exciting part, I think, for Tom and I is, is trying to to get that dance correct, uh, to get uh, the, uh, the uh, combustible mixture prepared just in time for that detonation front to come and consume it. And that's that's really what uh, is the real challenge. Uh, we uh, don't pretend to understand all of it. We try some things and sometimes they work. And in some conditions, we don't get a rotating detonation. We just get deflagration. We get constant pressure combustion, basically. So these are these are the, the challenges that that uh, one has to uh, step up against uh, when we're when we're uh, thinking about a RDRE design. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, I think you use the word dance that sounds appropriate because you, know, you have to balance the injection and it sounds like you have to match those. But Steve, if I'm correct, it sounds like matching those is, is a challenge because it's hard to predict. Correct, correct. It's a little bit like uh, an automotive or a diesel engine, right? Uh, in timing the injection when that cylinder head comes down to just the right location and getting the combustion event to happen exactly when you want. Um, you know, it shares the the RDE shares uh, uh, some similarities to, to automotive uh, combustion. Hmm. Uh, Tom, Tom, when you think about uh, traditional engines and, and this rotating design, um, you know, in terms of injection sites and in terms of trying to characterize and explain how how what 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 is when it, when you say rotating detonation, I'm really trying to understand what that means. What is what is rotating? What is detonating? Right. So, so the propellant itself is what's actually being combusted, um, and that combustion process drives a supersonic pressure wave. So you can think of it as if you were to look into the engine from, from the throat, you could actually see waves traveling around either clockwise, counterclockwise, and sometimes in both directions. Um, but what's actually happening is um, if you get down into uh, to, to, to the near the injection face, um, you can actually see that there is a wave front that is pushing uh, ahead of where the actual combustion process is, is occurring, and it is traveling in a certain direction. It is uh, basically slamming against uh, streams of liquid propellant or, or gas-based propellant um, and uh, causing an additional mixing process. And then behind it, after that, uh, that propellant has been compressed through that shock, uh, it is then combusted, which then in turn drives that that pressure wave ahead of it. So that's quite literally what's happening. Um, and in terms of where the the rotating detonation, so to speak, is occurring, um, it's actually occurring very close to the injector face. Um, a lot of folks have uh, actually visualized this and and seen evidence of where it's occurring uh, on the chamber wall itself. So it's it's very close to the injector face. Um, but where exactly it sits, whether it's quarter inch, half inch, in some cases an inch or two downstream really depends on uh, a number of factors such as uh, what what uh, Dr. Heaster mentioned, injection timing, um, the uh, wave speed itself, the propellant type, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, lots of different factors and that's and, and, and we're get really getting into what makes these RDREs, um, this kind of RDRE design very, very challenging. But What's I think what's exciting the reason part of the reason we're talking to you is not only to understand this design, but to um, to really recognize that you guys got to a point where you could, could conduct a hot fire test. 
you actually, um, you know, you, you were thinking about this design has is not necessarily new. It's been theorized, but um, eventually you were able to get to a point where you can print it and actually test it out. And so, Tom, take us through the um, the hot fire test, and, and specifically from the time of you know you guys were going through a bunch of different designs to really that that um, kicking us off with a certain level of confidence and readiness that hey, I think we're ready to print this and put this on a test stand and and, and give it a go. What what was that whole process like? Yeah, so so really, it started with uh, with with uh, industry and academia, and um, uh, Dr. Heaster's group put in a lot of the legwork over the last decade to really assess, hey, is this technology ready to go up to um, to large scale? And so, a lot of their preliminary work that they conducted really put the uh, put the groundwork or laid the groundwork, so to speak, for uh, for this hot fire test program that we conducted uh, summer of 2022. Um, that hardware, uh, we actually had a number of uh, test goals. Um, the primary test goal was to really to take the engine technology from a somewhat small scale heat sink, meaning it does not have coolant channels integrated, um, gas gas configurations, and and up the technology to a point where, uh, okay, thrust is now in the thousands of pounds. Um, the propellants are that we're using are now cryogenic in phase so what we would typically use on a on a uh, flight like configuration i guess you could say um and uh um, pushing uh average chamber pressures that are something a little bit closer to what um a uh, flight vehicle might might utilize and so one of the major test goals was hey can we fire one of these engines and it survive a true mission uh, architecture's duration. And our test goal was to exceed 100 seconds. And uh, we actually did that multiple times with uh, with uh, rotating detonations that we observed in the combustor. Um, we not only did that with uh, one engine geometry, but we did it with two engines. Um, the first engine scheme was actually more of a, a typical straight annular configuration that, uh, that we designed specifically to measure what we call calorimetry. Um, or to identify exactly what the uh, heat loads at specific locations of the combustor were. And then the second geometry was uh, a more uh, best effort optimized design to give it a much higher area ratio nozzle. Um, and then uh, uh, in addition to that, um, other goals were looking at much higher pressures in the chamber. Um, so uh, we were successful at that as well. Very good to hear. I want I wanted to back up Tom just a little bit and go over to Steve for just a sec because you mentioned that Steve did you know over the past decade maybe even more working on leading us up to the hot fire test. And so Steve, I wonder what that work entailed. What what were you doing over the past decade to really prepare yeah. us for this moment? Yeah, thank you. Um, so we got it at Purdue. My group at Purdue got started uh, almost a decade ago in this area. Um, colleagues at the Air Force had encouraged me to look into this because I was uh, a lot of work uh, at the Air Force has done is mainly aimed at air breathing uh, engine technologies, jet engines, uh, ramjets and those sorts of things. Uh, so we, we got uh, started on it. And as Tom points out, generally uh, the way uh, combustor development goes, you start with what we call heat sink hardware, which is just very heavy pieces of copper 
in very short run durations. So we we uh, start this thing up and we run it for literally just a second before the copper overheats and starts to burn. And uh, we started to get some good measurements there. And then a, a couple few years ago, Tom approached us and said, hey, we should uh, collaborate and, and uh, try and do something more ambitious uh, with the, uh, the tools that are available at Marshall, uh, real propellants, uh, cooled hardware, long duration capabilities. And those are the things that you know really uh, Tom demonstrated in, in his uh, test campaign last year. It was very exciting uh, to be part of that, and uh, you know to uh, be in the control room for a, a hundred second duration test. Um, as as uh, we we discussed, it's uh, uh, a lot of emotions there, a lot of uh, uh, banter going on, and the t test conductor telling people to be quiet because we're getting ready to fire a big rocket combustor. But it was it was it was exciting time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it sounded like up to that point you had only had you know really short durations, and so this was th this sounded like it was going to give you a lot more data, a lot more uh, understanding of what this was, and so you know all, all the work that got you to to use these new capabilities to get a better understanding of the engine. I mean, it must have been yeah. You sound like you guys uh, had just a ton of energy in that room. Um, because you know all the work, you said you've been working on this for a very, very long time, and now you have this this capability, this this new understanding. You must have been, yeah, you must have been ecstatic. Yeah, and 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 if I can if I can add that that very first hot fire that we we conducted, um, it <laughs> I, I get chills just just thinking about it. But um, uh, th there were a lot of challenges challenges with getting the combustor to ignite. I mean, as you can imagine, these, these things are so short, there isn't any what we call stay time. And so um, there was actually a uh, friendly running wager um, around uh, uh, the, the test engineers. And um, the idea was that uh, because this engine is so short, how much propellant is going to be spewed onto the pad that, that wasn't combusted. <laughs> and getting to see the combustor ignite for the first time and you see this full envelope of a plume come out and and just clear mock diamonds um and 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 shock formation uh it it, it just reliving the moment sitting here i can tell you it, it it all happened so quickly it was such a blur but i do remember distinctly uh our test conductor essentially saying all right uh valves are open ready fire and then there's a pause and then you see the engine come to life and you're getting performance metrics back. We see full chamber pressure uh, and you can hear an audible gasp in the room from the 20 to 25 people that were, <laughs> were standing back and watching. It, it really was a surreal moment. It was, it was like, I guess, I guess you guys, that was what you were going for, but up to that point, you hadn't really experienced it. And so... Maybe it was maybe it was the sound, maybe it was the visuals, maybe it was the flowing data. That's just like it sounded like you that's what you were building, that's what you were designing, but it just you know, it, it just sounds sounded surprising in a way. Yeah, it, it was it was quite shocking. And uh and, and even better was when we were doing the high pressure cases, the um, when we eventually went to higher pressures, the performance metrics we, we were getting back in the control room were absolutely staggering. Uh, so staggering that uh, one of my uh, one of my um, student interns at the at the time basically nudged my shoulder and said, "This can't be right. This this doesn't make any sense." <laughs> um, and 
That, that's another thing I'll say. I mean, it, the technology is phenomenal. It, it really is. And it's something that, that NASA is, is seriously considering and investing in for um, potential lunar or Martian lander missions. Um, and uh, it, it gives excellent opportunities to uh, interns uh, such as Pathways, uh, NASA NSTGRO fellows. Um, uh, I, I even had five interns working that project last summer and i'll be having another four coming back this summer so not only is the technology great but it gives opportunities for that next generation yeah not a, yeah, not the a bad land, lander mission yeah the lander mission is a very interesting one because um the shortness the, the fact that you can shorten the thrust chamber in the nozzle uh, has huge implications for a lander because you have long landing gear that have to extend beyond the bottom of the engine of course and so by shortening the engine, you also shorten the landing gear, uh, which reduces the weight uh, not only of the combustion system, but also of the, uh, the vehicle itself. And that's, that's, that's exciting, you know, one of the, uh, the prime uh, uh, potential applications for the technology for NASA. Oh, yes. yes. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about, um, you know, the, really the pros of the RDRE, I think um, – I think that's maybe something we haven't made super clear. It sounds like the nozzle design is is important um, and, and having it be smaller. But I think really another key component here that maybe we haven't said out loud is the performance of 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 the thrust. It's it, I think one of the one of the biggest pluses here is what you what this design offers is essentially more bang for your buck. Use getting more performance. Uh, and, and more thrust out of less fuel. Yeah, certainly. Um, so actually on, on this front, so we, we've mentioned it a number of times now, um, but just to recap really quickly, because that uh, the detonation phenomena is actually enabling um, rapid completion of combustion and you're able to shorten the length of your combustor um, by, by such a drastic margin, um, it, it, it really frees up not, not only the design space, but also the, um, the, the initial funding that is required to develop an engine. So by that, what I mean is that most of the time, a lot of companies will, will approach us and say, Hey, we're, we're developing this engine, but we're getting uh, really bad combustion efficiency. Um, something that we quantify as a metric called characteristic exhaust velocity. So C star efficiency can be very, very low, um, well below uh, 100% that of, of the theoretical limits. Um, but what we saw in testing was that we're hitting uh, very, very close to 100% um, every time. So that what that enables us to do is say, hey, you can now save all of your development funding required, go and develop an RDRE. And right off the bat, instead of getting 70 80 percent like like uh like like what you would traditionally see um and get very near that 100 percent mark so that's a that's an enormous advantage of the technology um that in addition to theoretical uh increases potentially in isp um but that's something that we're still parsing through isp is our gas mileage for for experts in the in the area that's that's the thing we're trying to advance i see um, yeah, I think I think one of the important things here, you know, going back to the hot fire test, you know, the, the you guys were talking about the emotions experience during the test, but then ultimately you're receiving this incredible data and you're able to um, analyze that. And so, Steve, I know you co-authored a paper. Um, and so, can you can you give us an understanding of 
just b- based on this hot fire test, based on all the work up to this point and, and your work on RDREs, what this revealed to you in terms of the capability and just sort of summarizing, um, you know, as uh, mostly for me, as simply as possible, just what you learned from from this uh, hot fire test. Well, there are innumerable things. I think we've touched on a number of them. Uh, the uh, hardware that we manufactured and tested, uh, you know, Tom's initial hardware was somewhat based on what we had done. Uh, although our combustor was manufactured uh, uh, with conventional means, subtractive, uh, you know, cutting cutting uh, hardware and drilling holes, uh, whereas uh, Tom's was uh, was additively manufactured uh, from uh, uh, laser built up from powder. Uh, so just the fact that you could do that, uh, the uh, the fact that uh, you could run long durations with cooled hardware was certainly exciting to us, and and the uh, the data that that uh, Tom and the crew gained in that area is, is invaluable. Uh, we need that data to design a flight weight uh, configuration and to, uh, and to be able to uh, uh, understand what the heat loads are, what what will our limits be. Um, uh, so you know that was that was a, another. Uh, major advancement there. Uh, unique uh, geometries. Uh, Tom alluded to this uh, tapered uh, chamber. Uh, checking out how that uh, differed uh, from performance that we had seen with a conventional straight chamber uh, was another uh, uh, crucial crucial outcome from the uh, the test campaign and from the work. I think um, kind of touching on you know why why we're doing this work. I think Tom, you sort of alluded to it, but um, you know in terms of what what this is, why why we are doing this initiative. This is this is something under um, under under an interesting NASA umbrella of work of you know exploring new technologies. And so, can can you help to describe and help to characterize you know how NASA is actually supporting and enabling? Uh, you know, working with Steve and Purdue, and and um, just how 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 this works, how we're able to explore new technologies. Yeah, certainly. So um, most of the time, if, if I had to boil it down, it, it really comes down to either the academic partner, the industry partner, government agency approaching us and saying, "Hey, we have this problem. Um, what tools do you have to help us solve that problem?" Um, and also, a lot of the time. Yes, in this case, it was development of a of a, a novel uh, propulsion system, the rotating detonation engine. But there are also other technologies that you discover in the process, right? Um, for example, uh, in the additive uh, uh, manufacturing uh, uh, process, we actually discovered that there are specific ways that you can design coolant channels such that you lose very little pressure losses. Mm-hmm. And for an engine, pressure budget is... Uh, is just as important as fuel economy, right? You only have so much that you can expend. Um, you can't have uh, have all of your your pressure being lost in the coolant channel geometry. You have to have some reserves so that you can push propellant into the combustor. You have to have uh, an accounting of of that uh, that pressure in the combustor itself as well, right? Which completely drives what your your um, your fuel economy would end up being. Um, so it enables us to go and develop new things like strategies for designing channels um, and even other technologies like finding, oh, this injection system is far more effective than than this other one, um, or even uh, designing novel, uh, novel uh, nozzle geometries, for example. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what is the industry need? 
um, how can we help industry um, and academia and how can we better serve um, uh, our uh, uh, U.S. partners? That's perfect. And and sort of kind of catapulting from there, Tom, back to you is, is really just thinking about what the next steps are. Now we've we've done this hot fire test. Steve went over some of the things that we we learned uh, from the hot fire test and this design and it you know this I, th- I think you know what I'm hearing just for and from the level of excitement from you guys and just from from understanding what this engine is is there's there's a lot of promise. So, you know, what what are the next steps that we're taking in terms of of RDREs and and continuing to to learn more about them? Yeah, so that that initial hot fire test campaign that we conducted was really more of a, hey, can we do this sort of thing? It it answered the fundamental question of what are what are the initial heat loads we're seeing? What are the other performance metrics we're seeing? Is it viable to go forward for a towards a more flight-like geometry? And um, after that work was shown to be such a staggering success, in my view. Um, the space technology mission directorate out of NASA headquarters saw fit to fund our uh, follow-on activities to do just that, to mm-hmm. really parse out the limits of the technology. Um, and so uh, I think the, the highest thrust we were able to demonstrate was um, a little over 4,000 pounds under that campaign. Uh, well, we're going to be going bigger. We're going to be pushing towards the 10,000-pound class. That seems to be um, uh, around the sweet spot of what most industry in the U.S. is looking for uh, doing CLIPS lander missions, for example, um, other lander missions to the moon, to the Mars, uh, to Mars. Um, and so uh, our next iteration engine is actually going to be a dual regenerative cycle, um, uh, a 10,000-pound rotating detonation rocket engine. And the reason why we have to go towards dual regenerative is because, well, uh, we no longer can take water with us uh, uh, for a, a flight configuration, right? Um, we, we don't have access to uh, enormous amounts of water to help cool the hardware. Um, so we have to demonstrate that we can successfully cool the hardware with just the propellants that we're, we're taking with us into space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because the heat loads are being shown to be so high, um, we have to use both fuel and oxidizer in this new combustor and um, hopefully we'll be able to overcome a lot of the challenges that you might experience there as well. Uh, and we're actually planning on testing a lot of those hardware this coming summer. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> Very exciting stuff. I mean, this, yeah, what you're talking about is is leading up to, it sounds like what you're doing is, and when you talk about the 10,000 pound class, you're not only talking about something that's that's bigger, maybe more powerful, but what you what you said very clearly is that this is something that industry can use. That this is what this is the this is the need. And so, Steve, I'll go over to you for a second. You've been working on this for a long time. You've been you've been. I think there's there's this interest in RDREs. When you think about the exciting potential and what this test has sort of kicked off in terms of continuing to scale up and and continuing to refine this technology that eventually could dare I say, disrupt the industry in terms of how, how um, you know, in terms of the engines that uh, different companies, different, uh, different space agencies even seek in terms of the technologies needed to accomplish their missions. How does, how does that kind of sit with you whenever you th- think about what you've been working on could possibly be used, you know, across the industry? 
Well, it's a, it's certainly exciting, um, you know, and, and Tom's campaign that he just described will be another step toward, you know, a real flight type uh, configuration. Uh, one one challenge that we haven't talked about is the fact that we've done very little, almost no work as a community verifying how well these systems work in the vacuum of space. Hmm. Um, the first thing we do is, is a ground test at, at sea level with uh, ambient pressure. Uh, we need to understand better how they're working in the vacuum of space. There are large facilities, just a few of them around the country, uh, where you can run an ejector system to pull down the ambient pressure to simulate an altitude of maybe 100,000 feet and to see how your system performs at that simulated altitude condition. Uh, another way of getting at that might be to do a flight test, to do a, a, a sounding rocket. And uh, using a long duration burn, you'll be able to see how the uh, how the uh, system performs over a range of altitudes. So those are those are things that I know Tom and I have been been musing about and uh, hoping uh, that we can get to uh, in order to prove out the uh, the vacuum performance, uh, because a lot of the missions that that NASA might be interested in will be space missions uh, where this system has to be able to ignite and start up in the vacuum of space. The nozzle has to perform well in uh, under uh, vacuum conditions. So those those are still things that lie ahead for us. Uh, but it is exciting, and I think the industry is, you know, uh, certainly uh, the interest in the industry globally has has increased exponentially uh, over the past few years, and and certainly with Tom's uh, test campaign last summer and uh, subsequent press release, uh, we're getting we're getting a lot of inquiries uh, from industry as a result. That's like that. That's how I discovered you guys was just the the level of attention. Um, just that 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 seems to be brought over to this. And you're right. You you know you you have a very leveled, very measured sort of response when it when it comes to that. You know, I I think maybe I'm jumping ahead because I just I I'm really excited. And I'm sure you guys are too. But I think it's I think it's really important what you said, Steve. That you know this this it was so exciting to get to where we were with the uh, with the hot fire test and understanding. But it's really just a step, and there's much. more more that's needed to give us a certain level of confidence and to really get us to a point. But the level of interest, I think, is really exciting and the potential is really exciting. Um, I think what's what's also exciting is just, you know, Na just NASA's participation in this. And, and Tom, I'll toss over to you to sort of help us to wrap up here is just understanding, you know, this technology is, I think what's what's exciting is is the way that we're exploring this is not necessarily for it to be a proprietary thing, for this to be a disruptive thing. That's something that can we can share, that we that we can explore, that we can talk with industry about, understand their needs. Um, and so and so I think it's something that it's exciting in a way that this is something that you know, NASA's investing in in order to, in order to um, to share and and to share the results, to share the 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 journey that we went on, and that's something that that you and your team um, uh, work on. Yeah, and and let me just say, we we are truly in a new golden age of spaceflight activities right now. Um, the the number of companies and and individuals and institutions. Uh, investing in in capability and new technologies and and new spaceflight activities is is just staggering. Um, I think we've had 
this year alone, we had more people in space than than uh, than any any year previously, which is just uh, incredible. And this technology is actually going to enable that a, a a lot more for U.S. industry um, going forward. Uh, now, now let me be clear: I don't think that. Uh, this technology is going to uh, completely replace every application of propulsion, sure, but it is yeah. going to drastically open up the 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 options there for uh, for spaceflight and exploration. And uh, NASA very much wants to be centerfold in that and and really enable industry to be able to do that um, because we are looking to go back to the moon and eventually on to Mars, and we're going to need uh, advanced propulsion technologies just like this in order to get us there. I think Tom that's that's exactly where I wanted to sort of wrap up for today is is just that level of excitement and just really just understanding what this means for the future and and is it's thanks to you guys and your teams that that really helped us to get us here and so to Steve to Tom thank you so much for for dedicating some time to speak with me about this new technology and what it means and help us to characterize and understand more about it this is just a really exciting thing and I'm and I'm so happy that I got to hear this the excitement from you guys on on the actual hot fire test and help and help to break it down um, this is just been such an enlightening um, and exciting conversation for me uh, personally. So I appreciate both of you for coming on and, and I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you learned something today. Really exciting to be talking with Tom and Steve. They had so much energy and so much knowledge, and I definitely pulled a lot from it, walked away a lot smarter on RDREs. I hope you did as well. You can check out NASA.gov for the latest, and make sure you check out NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center uh, for all of the great things they have going on there. We, of course, talk a lot about a number of different topics on this podcast. You can check out our full collection collection at nasa.gov slash podcasts, as well as the other podcasts we have across the agency. If you want to talk to us or maybe give us a suggestion about a topic that we should cover, we're on social media on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms to submit an idea. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on June 7th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Justin Herring, Heidi Lavelle, Abby Graff, Belinda Polito, Jane Jennings, Pat Ryan, Marina Gurgis, and Ray Asario. And of course, thanks again to Tom Teasley and Steve Heaster for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.